0: Tune in to this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size this clip comes from episode number 367 with Gareth Sanford and it is in this clip where he dives into the intricacies of the anaerobic speed reserve and how we can better plan our conditioning sessions for our athletes. But just before we do dive into this clip, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you're looking for a free, yes a free solution for collecting, analysing and visualising your data check out ams light which is the world's only free ams from rockdaisy at rockdaisy.com so explain to us what the anaerobic speed reserve is you may just yep. don't know exactly there but sure.
1: yeah 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 so as a starting point it's um it's a speed range so it's from the maximal aerobic speed which represents the first speed at which you would hit vo2 max in a laboratory test obviously People using that in the field are doing that without gas analysis, which is why it's different to, say, velocity at VO2 max and can also be used as maximal aerobic power. And it would be seen as more of a performance measure because you aren't uh, directly measuring the gas. Um, And then the maximal sprinting speed, um, I use a 50 meter all-out sprint for that from a standing start. Some of that is population specific. So, for example, there is data in elite sprinters showing they reach top speed after maybe 60 meters, whereas in maybe junior team sport athletes it's maybe nearer the 30, 40 meter mark. So there is a population specific constraint on that that top end. But that's that's what the anaerobic speed reserve is.
0: So because there's only nine hits when you when you did that scoping exercise at the start, when you actually got out there in the field on this on this world tour, which sounds absolutely delightful by the way. Um, obviously, there was work going on in the in the midst of that, but it sounds an unbelievable yeah. experience. Were coaches out there exposing their athletes to this to anaerobic speed reserve, or was it people knew about it but kind of didn't really take any notice?
1: I think uh, it, it's an it's interesting you ask that question because you know. Um, I think an important thing as a scientist is to meet coaches where they are, right? Sometimes that will be with terminology and other times it won't be. And um, I wouldn't say anyone was particularly, in the, certainly in a distance space, looking at speed reserve, where maybe in the, in the say, 400 space and, and downwards, they, and faster they would be. Um, but the idea of how do we get faster on the last lap and how do we understand these differences between individuals were questions that resonate and to be honest from as a practitioner that's the important thing is does the concept resonate you know the terminology can be what it needs to be for it to be meaningful with that that population as long as as the scientist you're operating from first principles and i think that's one of the challenging things that you get in in a space that's maybe relatively underexplored and and some people would say well there's not an evidence base for it like how do you close that gap as a practitioner and I think there's a few things that enable you to do that with coaches and I think the first one is you know having that sport specific context understanding their their key questions being open to what those are and then looking at okay well how do we build from there with scientific first principles you know we
0: I'm oh, sorry, I was going to interrupt you. Then you saw me. going to inter- Yeah, yeah <laughs> sorry, okay. mate. I'll put you off there. So, was, is, you, is there me. any examples of that from other conversations you've had with other sports when it comes to anaerobic speed reserve?
1: Yeah, so I think when you know you, you talked before in our pre talk, we were talking about you know some of the stuff I've done with England cricket, and you know, one of the first things Phil Scott saw when he tried out this was, oh man, this diversity that just plotting the anaerobic speed reserve across my athletes. This is what we've been seeing in training for the last however long, but we've not really had a lens to look at that diversity through. And so I think that's a good example where some of these simple measures, which maybe in the pure academic scientists, don't feel necessarily uh, enough. They feel very simple But as a first layer, the richness of the discussions that can create are quite extraordinary for people. And that doesn't mean that you have all the answers necessarily once you've identified the diversity. But if there's one thing that people take away from this conversation on anaerobic speed reserve is to start looking at their populations through different subgroup lenses. Because if you do that, you start asking different questions. Um and, and if you're not doing that, then I think there's there's things that are being left on the table, which we can maybe um un- unpack a bit more.
0: Absolutely. Just taking it back a little bit, I should have asked this right sure. when you mentioned it. So we've got the maximal aerobic speed. We've That's got it. top speed. Yeah. Okay, we've collected though we've got those numbers, we've got that data for our squad. What's the next what's the next step in this in this process?
1: Yeah, so another important measure within that is critical speed. And you'll notice that that's not part of the anaerobic speed reserve. Um, So to take a step back, there's a, you know, back in the 1920s, one of the famous physiologists, A.V. Hill, looked at world record performances and he plotted, you know, the hundred meters and the 400 meters and the 10,000 meters and the marathon and looked at the average speed of those races over time, right? And what you get is you get a, a curve that is steepest at the beginning. So the biggest change in that that speed is from like 100 down to say the 5,000 meters. But then once you go 5,000 to the marathon, it kind of tails off. And what I would encourage practitioners to do is to be able to look across that whole intensity speed continuum. Because some sports, for example, like the marathon, are more biased at one end of that right at the slower, continuous, aerobic area where things like critical speed, really, really critical performance markers. Then there are some sports like your middle distance sports. So sports that fall in the one to five, one to 10 minutes type space. So your rowings, your cyclings, track and field, those kind of things, which actually need qualities all the way along that whole spectrum, all of the time. It's a complete puzzle for coaches because there's so many plates to spin. And then you have team sports where they need elements of that stuff at the bottom, but with the increasing high-intensity demands and the the kind of non-high-intensity demands at times often being walking, their emphasis is probably more in that top end of that speed duration curve. And what that means is for practitioners that 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 top end is going to have the biggest diversity of profiles because you're getting people approaching that from... From different ends now why that is important from a training application side of things is because some people will start with a model a training model like oh I use critical speed for programming or I use the anaerobic speed reserve for programming or I use um, you know a five zone training model that starts at VO2 max and goes down south and each of those have strengths as a model and each of those have limitations and not every, not one of those models is going to solve every training question or problem or idea that you have. And so a, a, a bigger picture, since we can talk about specific variables, but that the overarching principle is we want to be able to develop looking across that whole speed through endurance continuum when we're making training judgments. Um, because often what I've seen, in some of these visits is you have, you know, physiology, maybe test that aerobic piece over here and you maybe have strength and conditioning that test the speed power piece. And those two things aren't necessarily talking to each other and different decisions get made based on those two things. And actually having that conversation together and making those judgments along that whole continuum together is where I think you get the most bang for buck and where you leave least on the table with individual athletes.
0: So you mentioned the ability to create subgroups. And I think that was in the in the mention yes. about, about Phil and his yep. his work with England cricket. Can you explain mm. that a little bit more for us?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what 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 the model-based framework I just talked through. So say, let's say, you know, I use um a five-zone training model for my athletes to improve them. And I put everyone through that five-zone model. There are some athletes that are probably going to respond better to that and somewhere it's really just not going to work for them at all. Now, one of the reasons I think that it doesn't work for some people is that these models are, let's say, suited towards endurance-type profiles, so more slow-twitch-type athletes. And when you think about, again, at the beginning, we talked about the distribution of the literature being predominantly on the aerobic side, a lot of the training models... Kind of a bias in that direction so a lot of the findings of you know this type of training is what works the best is based on a skewed reality where it, it's focused on that endurance side of the the population now then coaches have this complexity question right and you say okay well this this kind of model is working for some people but it's not working for others now what we can do at the front end before we've chosen our training model for an individual, is go, what's the distribution in our group? And we can profile the anaerobic speed reserve as a first layer tool to go, okay, who's a bit more speed? Who's a bit more endurance? And then we have buckets, right? Along a continuum where we can maybe say, hey, this model that we're currently using might preferentially suit one third of the group of athletes that we've got and you know it's it's a real accountability thing i think you know like just coming back from the games you realize you have a real responsibility as a practitioner to do everything you can for that athlete and they get one shot at this and when i was in new zealand they had a population you know of four and a half million Right. So hardly anything. So if you find a talent, you better get everything right with that talent because you might not have another one for 10, 20 years. And so at the front end, before we've selected our model, before we've gone, OK, here's the training or cultural bias of how we develop athletes. If we can actually step back and have, I like the phrase, firm opinions loosely held. Right. And, and go, what have we got in front of us? And then how do we, you know, how do we proceed on here based on where somebody is at? And so each sport is going to have, let's say, a ticket to the dance, right? There's going to be a minimum level of aerobic capability. You need to be in a 1500 meter Olympic final. But guess what? Once you're on the start line, everyone also is in that same ballpark. And so there are things that you, Rob, would bring to the table that we want to maximize to make sure that can be your weapon in that kind of scenario. So it's not saying, hey, this person's speed-based, we only do speed stuff. You need to look at the individual first, profile the athlete, and then what are the demands of the sport that you're in, and then what are the goals of the athlete. And I realize at the elite level, that's probably a bit easier. If you're someone who's listening and you're working in the athlete development space, then a framework I like to think about with this is something called ABZ, which is um, an example one of the startup guys, Sean Puri, uses. And what he says is, you want to know where you are. That's number A, right? Letter A. Where you are. So you can identify that with your profiling. Then you go, okay. What's your Z? Right? Where are we trying to get to? You know, if you're if you're an 18 year old, say academy player, or you're, you know, what's the long term goal? Are you trying to be an Olympic finalist? Are you trying to get a scholarship at college? And each of those will create different types of demands of what you're trying to aim for. And then based on that, you can go, okay, now what's the next step? And that for, for individuals, I think is a much more uh, it gives it gives you a much Greater chance of getting more hits, right? Because you're zooming in on what that individual needs, rather than here's a model which says, okay, on in five weeks' time on a Thursday at two p.m. we're going to be doing this. And I and I realise that it's uh, it's easy to say, harder to execute, and there are realities for coaches that have fifty athletes to take care of. But even if, as a minimum, you were able to do that first piece of, hey, who have we got in front of us? And you could bucket your 50 group across that continuum. You could target each of those three groups with a more specific stimulus than going, here's a model, let's put everyone through that.
0: Thanks for tuning into this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So if you do want to check out the full episode from gareth it's number 367 and you can get that on itunes spotify and youtube so big thanks to rock daisy for sponsoring this episode today and i will chat to you next time